0: Okay, hello everyone. Thank you very much uh, and welcome uh, coming to today's AAA Los Angeles Las Vegas section. Um, uh, Itaho meeting. Uh, today we have a, a very great uh, speaker and a very exciting topic. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. So this is our uh, uh, topic and the speaker and uh, the, the schedule right now. Okay, uh, before the presentation, uh, we have words and logistics took over. So thanks a lot to the Headquarters National Office. They provided this uh, very nice, uh, very expensive Zoom platform with many features. Uh, and this feature, uh, this session will be recorded thanks to the speaker. Um, and during the session, if you somehow get disconnected, please keep trying to reconnect. It will be just temporary. Um, if you have your bandwidth is limited, you can try to just uh, call in with phone and just leave the Zoom uh, as the uh, uh, viewing praise uh, place for, for the slides. Um, yeah, so uh, please sign in your real name, otherwise people won't know who you are. Uh, then the other thing is uh, uh, please try to network in the a chat box and the type of your question in Q&A. That's uh, the better way of doing it. And the more toward the end, uh, then you will be able to uh, raise your hand and speak out your question if you want. And uh, uh, Zoom has uh, improved the security. Airtable has been trying to help as well, um, but we are concerned. You know, please don't talk about any privacy or a company top secret or those things uh, over Zoom. Uh, the local chapter of AAA is very blessed because you know Southern California is heavily, you know, also like Seattle. You know, as uh, there's a very heavily aerospace uh, center populated. Uh, you know, people doing James Webb Space Telescope satellites, defense. Of course, JPL, Virgin Galactic, Virgin Orbis, SpaceX, Aerospace Corporation, um, you know, then student branches doing very good thing, uh, stuff and uh, breaking records in the uh, rocketry, student rocketry. And if you join the other way, you can immediately in, in, enjoy the engage and the chat with all the mem- members around the world. Um, so that's a great feature. So we keep doing uh, events so, uh, you know, people can get connected and get informed, you know, what's going on in aerospace. So next Saturday we have a, a very fantastic uh, event, very exciting to celebrate the 40th anniversary for the uh, Columbia, the STS 1. And uh, our distinguished guest, uh, Michelle, Miss, Michelle Evans here, who's here with us today, uh, is going to be the leading speaker uh, and uh, uh, along with a uh, fellow uh, uh, famous book authors uh, like herself. And, uh, and uh, then uh, the quantum computers and he's getting more attention in aerospace. And we are going to have uh, Dr. Dan Raymer uh, talking about his uh, Mars airplane and uh, some other exciting talks in the New Space Mini Congress, uh, April 17. Um, then we have uh, the Earth Day event and the, the awards dinner to keep people excited and uh, inspired. And uh, membership is an important part of the way And uh, um, we have several levels. Uh, then the, our membership chair is doing a good job and we have educator membership, which is free. And the AWA just announced the new free high school membership is brand new and it's very exciting. And our K-12 uh, STEM outreach chair has, uh, she has been doing great as well. And the AWA Nation also have been doing multiple events, the flagship event uh, around the year, uh, because due to the pandemic, the Aviation Propulsion Energy uh, Forum uh, they are going to be uh, totally virtual this year. You can see how it goes. Then you have the exciting Defense and Ascend, which actually replaced the formerly space conference, the SciTech. So there's just a couple of uh, photos, uh, screenshot for uh, you know, the past event this month, uh, past months for sustainable aviation. Here, we actually have two AA uh, fellows, uh, including Dr. Marty Bradley and Dr. Bruce Holmes. They are talking about the sustainable aviation. And just on that, uh, that day, and uh, we know we have the M- Empire and the, some other company, uh, Aero Zero Avia and the uh, uh, Steve from uh, the Sustainable Organization. Uh, so the, I think the Surf Air merge with Empire as you saw in the news, very exciting. Then we also have student conference, uh, you know, career. And then we have people talking Hyperloop on Earth in California and also on the moon Mars, very exciting. Then we have people from uh, Africa talking about how to do the uh, walk drive, you know, quantum gravity, very exciting, and the Africa development in aerospace. And uh, we also talk about the uh, quantum computer, just an introduction. Uh, then we have the space architecture, you know, from people, expert architect around the world, space architects. Uh, so to today, our um, speaker, we are very uh, happy and honored. This uh, uh, Mr. Sean Mobley he is the podcast host and the volunteer coordinator at the Museum Pride in Seattle. Uh, throughout history of aviation, I don't want to read this because he it will tell you more about it, but I'm just saying like people possibly like Leonardo da Vinci, and also the well-known major Margaret Witt, you know, this, uh, these LGBTQ people have designed and formed aircraft pursue the dream and space flight and reach their life for their country. He'll tell you more about the exciting stories. And he, uh, <clears throat> not only doing podcast host, and also he's volunteer at the uh, Museum of in Seattle. And uh, he's going to share with us, you know, his story about those pioneers. So, uh, um, well, so he will tell more about uh, himself, uh, no more. Uh, so please, you know, uh, let's welcome uh, Mr. Sean Mobley.
1: Thank you so much for that. Introduction, Ken, and for the invite to speak to you today. Hello, everybody. My name is Sean Mobley. Uh, Thank you, first and foremost, for taking time out of your Saturday to uh, attend today. Uh, The talk today is called Rainbow High, spotlighting gender and sexual minorities in aerospace history. And uh, I don't know about you, but it's a beautiful day, so I appreciate, again, you taking time to listen and learn and and keep your mind and and hopefully your heart open to what we're about to talk about. A little bit about me and uh, what I do, I'm with the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Uh, Some of you may have visited the Museum of Flight, if so, awesome, and if not, I hope you get a chance to come visit us. We're the largest independent, private, nonprofit air and space museum in the world. Uh, we're spread out over a couple of buildings, over two different campuses. Uh, a lot of you, if you've visited, you know we have a lot of Boeing artifacts, including the, the first ever Boeing factory, the Red Barn. Uh, but we're also not the Boeing Museum, which is one of those common misconceptions. Uh, we, we have a lot of Boeing artifacts, and Boeing is in our DNA, but we celebrate aerospace uh, from all over the world. A little bit specifically about me... I work in our education department. Uh, Specifically with our volunteers, I manage our docent program. We have about 225 docents, many of which are or were members of the AIAA in their engineering careers. Uh, But they also span all sorts of people, including dentists, salespeople, teachers, anybody who has an interest and passion in aviation and wants to share it with others, we're happy to welcome into our ranks. I also run the Museum of Flights podcast, which is called The Flight Deck. There will be a link to it up at the end if you want to check it out later. If you enjoy what you hear today, you'll probably like what you hear on the podcast. Similar kind of uh, hopefully interesting stories. And more recently, I've been helping with our virtual tours. So developing tours for high school, middle school, elementary school about things like the space shuttle. We have a some NASA space shuttle uh, trainer, which is similar to a space shuttle, but you can actually go inside it, which is really cool. All the NASA astronauts who went on a space shuttle mission actually used the uh, trainer to practice on, and you can go walk around inside it, and we've been working on digitizing that, Uh, working on a tour about pressure suits for kindergartners and middle schoolers, which, if you want a challenge, make a tour about pressure suits for middle schoolers. (laughs) That was a lot of fun to do, uh, and and, uh, definitely very proud of that. My background is in uh, history and communication studies and my academic background, and, and these two really seem to meld very well in, in my job right now. Uh, speaking of education, I'd be curious to learn more about that high school AIAA membership, because there might be some interesting partnership opportunities there. OK, so why are we here today? I'm always curious to learn, and I know Ken just said put stuff in the (laughs) Q&A section, so I'm sorry if I'm adding confusion. But if you're you're willing, you don't have to do this, uh, in the chat, just put a note about what brought you here today, whether it's you're interested in the topic or you're just looking for something to do on a Saturday morning, all of those are perfectly acceptable answers. I'm going to pause for a moment and let you type out if you would like. And I'll do this a few times during the talk. It's always challenged by choice. You don't have to answer if you don't want to, uh, but you're welcome to. <laughs> Excuse me. All right. For some reason, the chat box isn't showing up for me, so I will trust. I see it flashing, so I know people have put stuff in there, uh, but I'll take a look at it afterwards. <clears throat> a little bit of a note on vocabulary. Uh, couple of uh, vocab words I want to lay out for you, one is GSM or Gender and Sexual Minority. You saw me use it at the front of the talk and I'll be using it here on in. <clears throat> this is an umbrella term. It's very similar to, it's interchangeable with LGBT, LGBTQ+, uh, you've probably heard those words before. Uh, but this is shorter (laughs) and by default a little bit more inclusive at least i think so so it's what i'll be using so when you hear me say gsm i'm referring to gender and sexual minority in addition we're talking about history here and so where i can i do use the words that the people that i talk about use to identify themselves which may or may not be the words that we use today so you might hear one of those words and it might make you uncomfortable or or it might just not be a word that you're familiar with, or you might not use it. Um, And what I'll ask is if you hear one of those words, remember that these are their words. um, And and maybe rejoice in the fact that we live in a world today where GSM people can assert their identity and, and change language in the process. In places where I don't use contemporary language, I do my best to make it obvious that I'm applying a modern term to a person's historical experience. It might not seem like a big deal but it really is because language has evolved a lot even in the last 10 20 years let alone the last 100 150 years there are three themes that i hope you walk away having a familiarity with after this talk today first is that documenting the history history of marginalized populations is tough to do but vital for a more complete understanding of history Second is that aerospace history is gender and sexual minority history. We like to put history in boxes. We've got women's history over here and American history over here and military history over here. Uh, but in reality, they're interwined and, and cannot be separated. The aerospace industry would not have developed the way it did, if not for people who identified as part of the gender and sexual minorities uh, and, in, and inversely, the GSM community would not have developed the way it did if not for aviation and space exploration so these are intertwined and inseparable finally this theme of what is the ideal american we're going to look at the the idea the definition of an ideal american over the course of aerospace history and how it evolves um, and how it is continuing to evolve today i like to start this talk with just a, a small community agreement, a chance for us to establish some, some common ground here. Um, I, like this, I, I like this to be an open space for learning. And, and so what I ask of everybody is that you assume positive intent. If, if somebody asks a question, they're asking it because they genuinely want to learn more, even if they might phrase it a little differently than what you'd expect. Uh, remember that we're all here to learn, and uh, we're going to use that as a learning opportunity. I'd also ask that you try to respect confidentiality. I know this is a recorded talk, but if there is a section uh, that you want to take offline, I'm always welcome to do so. I'm always happy to do so. Uh, and then finally, and, and in many ways most importantly, I just ask that you practice empathy and and be open to experiences that aren't yours. Uh, these aren't your your stories, with the exception of Michelle, whose story is part of this, so that is her story. Uh, but for everybody else, these aren't your stories. That they might—they're they're different than yours. So be open to that understanding, and just be open to hearing other people's experiences. We might talk about some tough topics, and so you're welcome to excuse yourself. You're welcome to disagree, and that's perfectly okay. I just ask that you be open to learning more. Alright, so what we're working with, we're not just talking about pilots and I know I'm preaching to the choir here. Aviation isn't just about pilots, they get all the attention, but it takes a village to design and maintain and 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 get these things airborne all these uh, planes and and rockets, etc. So we're going to talk about people both within and even from outside the aerospace world who nonetheless had an impact in aviation. We're focusing on stories from the United States. There are some great people who aren't from the United States who are worth talking about, but they're just not part of the parameters of this. Specifically, I would encourage you to check out a woman named Roberta Cowell, who was a a trans woman who was a World War II pilot for the Royal Air Force uh, before she later underwent what we would today call gender confirmation surgery and is the first... Uh, That we know of the first British trans woman to undergo that surgery lots of information about her out there on the Internet, a great story in its own right could be its own presentation, but it's outside the purview of our talk here so I would encourage you to check her out on your own. Uh, Indeed, the stories that we will cover are predominantly also about white individuals we're not going to spend a lot of time with stories of people of color and that's not because they didn't exist uh it's because their stories are not readily available in the historical record and this is a chance for you to participate again drop drop a note in the chat i'm, I'm curious as to why i'll let you speculate put on the historian cap why is it that there aren't a lot of readily available stories of people of color uh, uh specifically within the gsm community in aerospace history so take a second type out some thoughts and i've got something in my throat so i'll take a drink of water while you're doing that all right i can see the chat box all of a sudden now which is magical i see some answers coming in some people are mentioning some of the patterns of erasure in history. Yep, the um, harder to get education that can definitely impact your ability to record your story. Excellent. On that note, I do, I do want to extend an invitation. This is a constantly evolving talk and if you see a gap in here and you have uh, someone that you know of that might be a good fill, please let me know. <laughs> I've already revised this talk several times, uh, continuing to add and refine to it. So. Uh, consider that an open invitation <clears throat> and with that let's go ahead and get started we're going to start all the way back in world war one this is a piece of world war one ephemera it's a program from a musical that was put on for world war one soldiers in germany american soldiers in france i'm sorry not germany in 1919 called the pink stocking it bills itself as quote the Aviator's Musical Comedy in Two Flights with No Landings. So what this is, is it's a drag performance. This is an aviation-themed drag performance that was put on for American soldiers in France in 1919. For a little bit of local color, it actually starred uh, future Seattleite, Frank McCormick, who, who moved to Seattle in the 1960s with his partner, Stephen Blair, and they became part of uh, the community here. Uh, Stephen, as you see in the... Or Frank, excuse me, as you see in the pullout there, played george wilson who is in love with gladys Gladys, of course being played by a man so this shows us a few things it first of all demonstrates a public interest in aviation i think a lot of you know that aviation has sparked minds since the very beginning i mean when we were going up in balloons that was a spectacle and here we are in world war one where aviation was really a sideshow it's it's kind of hard for us to remember that because i think the only thing most people know about World War I at this point is the Red Baron, who's a pilot. But at the time, aviation was not what won or lost the war. It was really kind of this thing on the side that, that happened and was very important for aerospace, for the aviation industry. But in terms of the larger context, it really didn't mean that much. And yet, it sparked so much interest, captured the imagination so much, that here we are, at the time, writing plays about this. And this also demonstrates a presence of people uh, who are members of uh, the gender and sexual minority community and this is an entirely drag based -based performance and this wasn't the only one that took place at the time while we're in europe let's let's stay over there for a few minutes this might be a familiar face to some of you this is josephine baker she is known to many, for her stage presence, her, her civil rights activism, and her, her larger-than-life rags-to-riches success story. She was unable to find success in the United States as a black woman, a black performer, so she went over to Paris, where she rose to prominence in France, where uh, with her provocative dancing and, and her dress, or her lack thereof, made her headlines and really made her a star. Now, on top of this, a much more obscure part of her history is that she was a pilot. She held her pilot's license, and uh, there's some evidence to show that actually, when when the chips were down on stage, she would go out and participate a little bit in the barnstorming in the countryside, which uh, is a whole interesting episode of her life. In addition. In the 1930s as europe careened towards war she flew supplies for the red cross in her howard dga 11. Uh, if you're curious that's what a howard dga 11 looks like there on the right that's not here at our museum that's at a different museum but that's the kind of plane that she would have flown that's not her exact plane later on during world war ii Uh, She was actually part of the French Resistance, and she was officially part of the Women's Auxiliary of the Free French Air Force, so continuing that aviation theme. And she used her cover as a well-known performer to conduct espionage on the Nazis, and then provide intelligence back to the Allies. No one would suspect that she was a spy, she was a very famous performer, but she was listening in and then passing information back. Of course, her status as a queer icon has been around for decades. Her decadent, over-the-top style was emulated by drag performers um, immediately. In the mid-1900s, we have drag queens who are wearing their hair in the Josephine way, or who would lip sync to her songs. And as recently as 2018, uh, the drag queen on the right, Monique Hart, wore a look inspired by Josephine on national television. So here's Josephine Baker on the left with her famous banana dress, and on the right is Monique Hart wearing her take on the banana dress. And I really like actually these two photos together because on the left we have a woman who couldn't find a stage in the United States. They would not let her play because of the color of her skin. And here we are about 100 years later where we have a a black queer performer on national television on an Emmy Award winning show uh, really paying homage to the people who came before her. Now the reality of baker's life has been shrouded in myth and mystery in large part by her own design she really put up this mythology about her so it's really hard to separate fact from fiction in her life historians haven't really made a serious effort to do that yet Uh, regardless there are some questions about there that maybe she was herself bisexual really adding to that, uh, that GSM mythology to her. But whether that's true or not, she's still without question a queer icon whose aviation story is virtually unknown. As the United States moves into World War II, this is a pretty seminal moment for the GSM community. First of all, there wasn't really much of a GSM community <laughs> before World War II. It, it really kind of formed as a result of World War II. Uh, but there wasn't much on the books in terms of official policy about what to do with gsm individuals in the military and that doesn't mean that they were accepted and you could be allowed to come in and join Uh, what was on the books was this thing called sodomy which is this very broad and really not well-defined set of of terms or, or set of things that included homosexual acts but it also included things like bestiality uh all sorts of things uh, that were kind of lumped together under this term sodomy and and like i said it was ill-defined the definitions weren't really written down anywhere um in in very few places so it's kind of hard to know exactly what it was uh (laughs) that people were being punished for at the time but there really wasn't much systematic you know there weren't there wasn't any uh, system for eliminating gsm individuals from the military or excluding them and that changed over the early years of the war and it changed because of this person this is harry stack sullivan sullivan was a respected psychoanalyst a psychologist whose field was still emerging at the time uh, the psychologists were a punchline Uh, they still get kind of that reputation we call them shrinks there's a lot of jokes about psychology and they really wanted to cement their their career their field and they thought that they could help as it was obvious that the united states was going to enter into another world war they wanted to help with what was then called shell shock what we would today call post-traumatic stress and, and what was happening after World War I was people were coming home very changed and very different. They had seen trauma, that they had experienced trauma in the trenches and were coming back carrying this with them. And the psychologists thought, well, based on the psychology of the time, they thought that there might be certain characteristics that made a person more inclined to uh be shell-shocked and if we could come up with this list of characteristics that the military could use to screen out these people then they would have a stronger fighting force it would be a win-win-win because uh, the military wouldn't have as many people having psychological problems so it would be a stronger fighting force it would be less expensive to maintain because he wouldn't have to take care of their medical stuff afterwards and it would be a win for the psychologists because the military would be using a psychological tool And that would be uh, really important for cementing psychology as something serious, because in the United States, we draw a lot of value from what the military values. So they created this screening of things that would uh, screen out a person. And so the military was for the first time going through and, and systematically excluding people based on these psychological characteristics. Now, initially. Homosexuality was was perhaps conspicuously not on this list of exclusionary characteristics, but uh, as Sullivan lost control of the list and the military bureaucracy took it over, it was quickly added to the list of uh, things that would disqualify you. Now there's a bit of a, an irony here because it turns out that Sullivan had been in a relationship with another man for at least a decade by the time the war had broken out so so the punchline here is that sullivan who is a gay man basically accidentally created the mechanism for which the military excluded gsm individuals for the next 60 70 years or so Uh, not quite 70 uh, 50 or so but that didn't stop people Uh, you know this this did codify for the first time in the military's view what the ideal American was, and it it definitely excluded GSM people from that definition. And like I said, we draw a lot of value from what the military says in the United States. But that didn't stop people from serving. People like Helen Harder. Helen Harder was in high school when she met another student who uh, she identifies as Hollis, uh, whom she described as, quote, gay as the widget. She has a wonderful oral history with a lot of quotes like that, most of which I can't repeat here because she was a salty, salty-mouthed person. Um, but but Hollis introduced her to the fact that there were others like her in her town and her school. She ended up joining the Women's Army Corps during World War II. Uh, she wanted to fly. She had actually built an, and flown a glider when she was a kid in high school, and she wanted to fly but couldn't. So she ended up joining the Women's Army Corps and became a Link Trainer instructor. Now, if you're not familiar with the Link Trainer, and this is a really cool piece of aviation technology from the time. It's it's essentially a simulator where instead uh, where where the aviator would cover their excuse me cover their um, head and it was used for training uh, uh, instrument flight. So all they could see were the instruments in front of them. It actually sounds kind of miserable because you're in this probably stuffy a little box and all you can see are the instruments in front of you. Uh, It's dark apart from that and it's attached to a map uh, that's mechanical uh, with a mechanical arm that will draw your route on the map. We have a couple of these in the Museum of Flight's collection, including this one right here, which is in our World War II exhibit. So if you do visit the museum, check it out there. Um, But she describes an extensive underground lesbian and gay culture on her base. She says, quote, the lezzies were all in aerial photography. Uh, an area that she wanted to join but was unable to gain entrance to. And, and that kind of demonstrates that she is only one of millions of GSM Americans who served in World War II, and, and many thousands of those served in aviation capacities. I actually have a whole separate talk on World War II aviation, GSM, uh, which is a very different talk from this one, uh, but I just put finishing touches on that a few weeks ago. So I won't talk more about it, otherwise we'll be here for <laughs> more time. I do want to spotlight one other person from this era, a familiar face to anyone who's studied American history, and that is Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor was herself a pilot. She was a close friend of and indeed inspired by Amelia Earhart, and it's very likely that she would have become a pilot herself uh, in her career if it wasn't for uh, and a career in aviation if it wasn't for FDR really ramping up his political career and asking her to stop studying for her pilot's license. She was on that route uh, and, and likely would have pursued it. There is evidence also for uh, lesbian or, or bisexual bisexuality within her. She had relationships with several women uh, to the extent that one actually lost her job. Uh, because of their relationship and uh, Eleanor actually got that woman she was a reporter got that woman a job in the White House afterwards uh, as a result of that now it's important to point out also that her husband FDR had several affairs over the course of her marriage uh, with women also as far as we know (laughs) but in addition to her own interest in aviation she had a really big part in in aviation history especially involving African American history She was instrumental to getting the tuskegee airmen program moving forward now for those who aren't familiar with the tuskegee airmen program this was a a program during world war ii designed to uh, let african americans become pilots uh, both for fighters and for bombers although the bomber program didn't really get off the ground too far so this is a photo of eleanor roosevelt with chief civilian instructor uh, alfred anderson chief anderson as he was known and and he was taking her for a flight. As part of this process now the scandal of this photo is really hard for us to understand today to us this just looks like a photo but at the time you have to remember that the officials military the the military's official position was that african-americans did not have the mental or physical capacity to do anything but menial work they could cook they could dig trenches they could smile but fly a plane they they literally do not have the capacity or so the military officials thought so to have a photo of the first lady of the united states being piloted by an african-american is a really really big deal it's a huge statement on her part that this is backwards thinking and that and that these pilots are perfectly capable so uh this actual photo came from a flight that she took with chief anderson it was a 30-minute flight just the two of them up in the air and when they landed eleanor simply commented "Uh, well you can fly all right and she had this photo taken and had this photo circulated in washington dc and amongst people who could make this program happen and a few months later the tuskegee military program officially began it was a civilian program at the point of this photo the military was kind of dragging its feet this is one of the things that tipped it over the edge. Uh, now, uh, this is only a part of the story. You know, I don't want to oversell her, her part in the story. There are a lot of people who made this happen, but it is definitely a vital part. All right. The war ends and the Jet Age begins, and the Jet Age brought new travel opportunities with it. And along with it, it brought (laughs) fresh problems for people involved in the industry. Sexism against women kept them out of the cockpit. They could be stewardesses, uh, but even as stewardesses, they faced insurmountably high standards. They couldn't be married. If they were married, they couldn't be pregnant. They had to be a certain age. They had to weigh in to make sure that they fit within the parameters. And this was happening because the face of air travel was changing. As travel became more and more accessible, Uh, and cheaper, more and more businessmen chose to fly as opposed to other forms of transportation. Now there's always an undercurrent of sexism involving stewardesses, even going back to Ellen Church, who we have a lot of stuff at our museum, Museum of Flight, about Ellen Church, the first uh, stewardess in the United States. But in the jet age, the stewardess became more and more of a sex object. Airlines wanting to woo travel dollars By maintaining the most attractive cadre. And there was a huge cost to women. As a result of this. Most only remained as flight attendants. For about two and a half years. With up to 80% of stewardesses. Resigning or being fired. Within a given year. Imagine that in your workplace. Imagine 80% of your colleagues. Gone. Every single year. Men were in the trenches as well they acted as stewards alongside female stewardesses often they were the only ones allowed to act as bursars or handle the money they wouldn't allow women to do that and many homosexual men were drawn to the career you get a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem here of were they drawn to the career because it became a haven or was it a haven because they were drawn to it Kind of hard to suss that out but what we do know is that there's some level of tolerance even uh, within airlines that uh, even though in that they weren't fired immediately even if their sexuality or, or characteristics if they displayed stereotypically homosexual tendencies uh, even if that wasn't a secret and interestingly not only were they not fired but those characteristics might even be seen as an asset as the steward position moved To one of comfort as opposed to safety during this time stereotypes about gay men actually came into play. Providing comfort in our society is considered a more feminine characteristic and it's thought uh, it was definitely thought back then that gay men are more feminine. So, so these characteristics actually kind of became valued at the time. And this was an internet it was an important moment nationally for the gsm community because it was for many people who were now traveling the first time they really had exposure to a gay individual and similarly many of these men's were open about their sexuality uh, with their colleagues their female co-workers or at least they didn't hide it from their female counterparts so it was for many of these women who would come from all over the country, a lot of them came from small towns, the first time they'd worked alongside uh, an an openly, in quotes, an openly gay individual. I say quotes because it really varied wildly. And airlines tolerated, perhaps didn't love having what they termed, quote, sexual deviance working for them. And they also understood that changing face of air travel like we like i said male flight attendants were not the ones that businessmen wanted to ogle or at least not what most of the businessmen wanted to ogle and there were crackdowns in the late 1940s and 50s Uh, the post-war machismo that set in made it more difficult for feminine men (coughs) quote unquote in the public eye sorry i've got something in my throat this morning and, and remember that homosexuality was, for the first time, officially a reason to reject someone for military service just a few years before. Uh, and so this was a big force on even the civilian world. This is the era of the hard-boiled detective, the man's man, you know, James Bond and all that comes out of this time period. Fewer and fewer men acted as stewards over that era. Delta actually fired almost all of their male stewards and went pretty much with women exclusively in 1948. And then something happened in August 1954 in Miami that put the nail in the coffin for men, both straight and homosexual, acting as stewards. This is William Simpson. He was a steward for Eastern Airlines and in August 1954 in Miami, he was murdered. Simpson was killed in a lover's lane. And the public implication from just that is massive. So we have a man in a stereotypically gay career murdered in a lover's lane. And at the time, the thought is women were too dainty to commit murder. This is not the kind of crime a woman would do. So it had to be a man in this lover's lane who killed him. So just from that headline, there's a lot of salacious implications. And the story twisted as it unfolded police did indeed arrest two men for the murder and those men claim that Simpson had propositioned one of them and then they held him up after he propositioned them and then robbed him and then they say that they shot him in self-defense they claimed that he was going to have his way with them and in a panic after shooting him they ran and they said that they didn't realize they would killed him they'd only discovered he was dead when they read the papers the next day now almost immediately the police completely ripped that story to shreds. Uh, it does not, the, the details of the confessions did not jive with each other. And they also didn't jive with other details uh, on record uh, for the order of events the night of the murder. Nor with the killer's own confessions to the fact that they would carried out this same scheme for five months with other victims. They just hadn't shot them. So this was clearly a, a, a murder <laughs> in any sense of the word. But homophobia kicked in and really twisted the story instead of the story being uh, about the murder of simpson which again the police quickly extracted from the two men once their story broke down the public sentiment instead turned the story into simpson acting as a predator who the two men killed out of fear that he might sodomize them there's that word again the two killers ended up convicted simply of manslaughter which is basically accidental murder uh, not murder despite the obvious nature of the crime and the murder had repercussions nationally and locally for the gsm community and the aviation community airlines used it as a catalyst to sweep men out of the airplane cabins they didn't need any you know this was all the bad press they needed so it was gone it wasn't all immediate but within a few years most airlines had adopted women only policies the city of miami Used it to crack down on the thriving GSM community in the city and the crackdown was so severe that a newspaper in this uh, a gay newspaper all the way across the country in California decried the move and this is the time before the internet okay so for a story to make it all the way from Miami to you in California that's got to be a pretty intense story. Uh, the, the, The city fathers wanted to clean up the city and make it more presentable to a 1950s society. At the time, Miami is a huge spot for aviation. It's a travel hub. People come to Miami to take planes to go out into other parts of the world, and they wanted to make their city, quote, more presentable. It was a brief but brutal crusade that fractured the community in Miami, but it also couldn't go too far. Uh, A quote from the Miami chief of police really says it all when he says, quote, if I ran all the homosexuals out of town, members of some of the best families would lead the parade. The airplane cabin would be the domain of the white stewardess for the next 15 years or so until the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then subsequent lawsuits uh, by men who wanted to again work the friendly skies. And i want to be clear there's plenty of injustice to go around i'm not implying that these stewardess who remained had it easy by any means no one here not not the gay or straight men nor the gay or straight women working as stewards or stewardesses were the winners here and they all had a lot of battles ahead of them in terms of finding equity and fair treatment and that stigma stuck by the way Uh, i had a conversation with one of our docents who is a male flight attendant a straight male flight attendant who came on after Uh, in the 60s when they were allowed to again and he said that one of the kind of unwritten requirements was that he had to be married to a woman because if if a man is married to a woman then he's clearly not gay Uh, and they wanted to still kind of keep that uh, air going Leonard Matlovich served in Vietnam as part of the Air Force he actually served three tours in Vietnam he was injured by a landmine, which earned him the Purple Heart and his combat experience earned him the Bronze Star. He was in many ways, a model officer, he was he was (laughs) well respected by the people around him. He did his job. Well, he actually taught race relations classes because the military was really heavily integrating at the time. And because of his status as a well respected person, he thought that he might be a good test case because he was also homosexual. So he worked with the american civil liberties union to become a test case for policy in the 1970s so the thought was that he would come out and as a model member of the air force uh if he were to be discharged he would have a pretty strong case that he was being discriminated against and that the the air force was not doing the right thing here and so indeed he did he he came out was honorably discharged and then sued for reinstatement back into the Air Force, and he actually won the case, which it feels like that should be the end of it, right? (laughs) But it unfortunately wasn't. The Air Force offered him a financial settlement if he would basically go away, and he ended up accepting. He figured it would only be a matter of time before the Air Force found another reason for him to get discharged. He was already on their no-no list because he was making all this noise, so he figured it wouldn't take long until he got discharged. In addition on the national stage a string of anti-gsm rights politicians had won national office so he felt that he wouldn't fare well if he continued the fight that the courts would maybe get stacked against him Uh, and so it was agreed that he would go ahead and stop pursuing the case he eventually died of hiv aids related illness in his early 40s but didn't stop the fight up until then His name serves as a rallying cry for those who worked for gsm acceptance in the military at the time his tombstone is anonymous his name isn't on it uh, but you can find it today uh, on his tombstone in case you can't read the quote there it says quote when i was in the military they gave me a medal for killing two men and a discharge for loving one Now, people like matlovich are remembered because they stood out on the national stage and their stories are important but we shouldn't forget the stories of everyday people in the aerospace world who are just trying to do their job uh, stories of people like michelle evans who uh, was a child of the space race like many of her contemporaries she had a fascination with all things fast and flying she's a transgender woman and she remembers being interested in aviation from just her earliest days She enlisted in the air force in 1973 spending a lot of her time again washington connection up here at fairchild air force base in spokane washington where she served various roles Uh, the favorite that she said was was doing analysis she she would debrief people create reports for base command and that let her get in touch with a lot of people and get to know a lot of folks she worked with the nuclear arsenal as you can see from this photo opportunity she's a big fan of the the movie Dr. Strangelove, and and I think several several times if I'm not mistaken has taken photos atop nuclear missiles Um, now according to her she she planned to make the Air Force a career and she was on track to become an officer but that career was derailed by transphobia now she went into the military feeling sure that she had everything quote under control her first memory as a child she says is that she Is a woman though that may not be how the world saw her and when she disclosed this to her parents they discouraged it so she felt it was best not to disclose it to anyone from that point and she represents millions of people in aerospace history who just worked every day to keep their gsm identity undisclosed often so successful that they hid their identity from themselves about six years into her service she was outed without her consent by two people on base who started spreading rumors about her. Now she had an established positive reputation. That job in analysis where you got to work with a lot of people seemed to help in this case. Uh, but, and so these rumors are generally not believed, but they were enough to cause her trouble that piled on and on and on. And it didn't help that her squadron leadership left and with it left the protection that she had from these rumors and the new leadership was less than friendly. This culminated in a series of events that ended up with her being set up by a commanding officer for an infraction, which she ultimately paid a fine and, and actually lost her rank as a result of. Now, by that time, she had been bullied into leaving the Air Force, uh, but she did believe that she had earned benefits and was entitled to those benefits that she lost when she lost her rank. She tried a few things, but having exhausted legal recourse and and just days from her enlistment ending, she threw a Hail Mary and wrote to 60 Minutes explaining the bullying, though le- leaving out the root cause uh, of the bullying. And 60 Minutes contacted the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who happened to be an Air Force general, whose office looked into the issue and took action in Evans' favor, restoring her rank and pay and robbing the officer who charged her of a cushy upcoming assignment in England. And those of you who know the military know it's the most military passive-aggressive way of punishing someone. And that passion didn't end uh with that job after she left the air force she continued a career in the aerospace industry completing a career and working in aerospace engineering while simultaneously taking photos of everything around her and writing about developments in the space shuttle program in space uh, like the space shuttle program and here's a photo uh, that she's there taking of the space shuttle she went on also to write a book about the x-15 as she started writing this almost immediately after leaving the air force and researched it over the course of 30 years but but she was struggling to write it and it wasn't until after her gender confirmation surgery relatively quickly that she said that her brain just cleared enough for her to be able to actually write it now after sur- after word of her surgery spread through the x15 community there were some pilots uh, and former military personnel who swore off her book and said that they would denounce it say that she'd never talked to her she'd never talked to them Uh, but being a good historian she had the tapes she had the audio recordings (laughs) of those interviews and so was able to respond to any accusations of that I'm curious if you've ever heard the, the theory or the story that HIV-AIDS was caused or brought to the U.S. by a promiscuous gay male flight attendant. I certainly heard that growing up. Now this is a myth, so let's debunk it. It's about this person right here, actually, the person in the photo, Gaetan Dugas. So So what's true about him? Well, he was a Canadian flight attendant. He was from Quebec. He flew for Air Canada. He was charismatic, athletic, well-traveled, and and he would hook up with people in a lot of the cities he visited. He also did indeed die of HIV-related illness in 1984. So how did those facts become the myth that that some of you may have heard that was very prevalent in the HIV AIDS era? Well, when the extent of the HIV AIDS epidemic started becoming more and more apparent, scientists wanted to find the cause understandably that's their job so the cdc conducted research seeking to trace the aids epidemic in california specifically and gaytan duga was part of that study in california uh, but because he wasn't from california he wasn't physically in california he was listed in the studies as patient outside california meaning literally that duga was not in california even though he was part of the study Now, this was shortened to patient O, patient outside California. And then that patient O was either misread or maybe even willfully misinterpreted into patient zero. And for those who are looking for an answer or a scapegoat, Dugas was a perfect patient zero. He was homosexual. He was a promiscuous flight attendant. We've already talked about the perceptions of flight attendants. Uh, and he was the perfect person for individuals who wanted to propagate this notion that HIV-AIDS was a gay disease or some sort of punishment for that community. They could just point their fingers at him and be done with it. Now, in the wider context, HIV-AIDS was, and in many places still is, considered a gay disease in the United States. And yes, GSM individuals were and still are the highest percentage of HIV diagnosis in the United States. But the disease can impact other populations. Anyone can contract the disease if they're not careful, ranging from individuals with low immunity already to otherwise healthy people who just aren't careful. And don't underestimate this social pressure. These are the same forces that kept then President Ronald Reagan from saying a single word publicly about the AIDS epidemic for six years until after 20,000 Americans had died. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but in COVID-19, by the time 20,000 Americans had died, we were already in lockdown as a country. And now a year later, we have a vaccine. There's still no vaccine for HIV AIDS, although there's been a lot of progress towards it. Not to mention that it's medically impossible for Gaetan Dugas to have introduced HIV AIDS to the United States. Never mind that he was never actually patient zero, he was patient O, but now HIV AIDS in the U.S. has been traced back into the 1960s, long before Degas first told passengers to keep their seatbelts lightened and obey all lighted signs. i have already discussed kind of the the social influences for this too, so he does not deserve the legacy he's been given of unleashing this vicious disease on an unsuspecting public as he has been so often portrayed. Let's head to the stars. Sally Ride was the first American woman to go to space. She was an astrophysicist before she was accepted to become an astronaut in the 1970s. Uh, She ended up flying on two missions and her, her input was so valued that she actually served on the Columbia accident investigation board. Now, as the first American woman in space, she had a lot of pressure for being the first. She was asked a lot of pretty dumb questions, to be honest. A lot of sexist questions. Things like, what what, are you going to cry when you go to space if something goes wrong? Or what kind of makeup are you taking up to space? I would love for someone to ask Buzz Aldrin those questions uh, the next time he comes and and gives a talk here. (laughs) she went on to be an inspiration for women everywhere. Uh, She advocated for for everybody, but especially for girls and and women to pursue an interest and careers in STEM. She teamed up with one of her childhood friends, a writer, Tam O'Shaughnessy, to write some children's books about planets and space exploration, which we actually sell in our Museum of Flight store. So if you want to buy them, you can order them online from us and help support the museum. She married a fellow astronaut, Stephen Howley, for a few years, but They got divorced, and this was a very quiet marriage, a very quiet divorce. They were extremely private about their personal life. And uh, considering the kind of questions that Sally got when she became the first American woman to go to space, it's kind of hard to blame her for not wanting to deal with the public face too much. She was so private that she actually kept the details of her pancreatic cancer out of the press, which is a disease that killed her in 2012. Now, After her death, we learned something about her. In her obituaries, it came out that she'd been living with Tam O'Shaughnessy, the author that she had collaborated with, her childhood friend, for years by that point, but it was not public, which means that Sally Ride is the first known GSM astronaut. So that's an interesting first there, being the first known GSM astronaut, and it's worded per- purposefully in that way not because i think i have any particular special insight i'm not here to blow the lid off any of the apollo astronauts or anything like that but because there's a lingering question for historians nasa's definition of the ideal american was very specific these were supposed to be the best of america going up against the best of the russians during the cold war during the mercury gemini and apollo programs and at that time the best of america was white male and married and having a happy marriage the pressures on these people's marriages were so intense that as we've learned more about the astronaut wives we know that some of them were were close to committing suicide because they were so unhappy in their marriage uh, but were so trapped in it that they couldn't get out and it was only the camaraderie of the other astronaut wives that kept them going that's a lot of pressure on a person and if i know anything about the early astronauts they were mission driven and they were not going to do anything that jeopardized their ability to go to space so if one of them were a part of the gsm community or had a gsm identity would we even know it would they have left a shred of evidence or would they even have let themselves think <laughs> in that way so there's a lot of lingering questions there that we just may never know the answer to Moving along in history, we get to Karen Ulaine. Karen was a a transgender woman. She was an army pilot in Vietnam. She uh, won the air medal with eight clusters and was even a pilot instructor for the army before she left the service. She joined Eastern Airlines in 1968, which is the same airline as William Simpson, the steward from earlier, if you remember. And she joined as a pilot. She served the airline well, rising through the ranks for over a decade. In 1980 she underwent what we would today call gender confirmation surgery and began the process of switching her birth certificate her pilot's license her faa credentials and other legal documents to reflect her gender eastern found out about this and fired her in 1981 listing five reasons they were firing her and all five reasons related directly to her surgery or to her trans identity she sued Eastern Airlines under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 the same law that I mentioned earlier that the male flight attendants were using to regain access to work and the lawsuit documents really give us this this thorough look at her life if filtered through legalese which is its own special language which is pretty rare for a transgender person living in that era this is a public record Uh, now she roundly won the case against Eastern So so an example of of one of the things that Eastern tried to use, they claimed that her presence would uh, cause, quote, notoriety that would follow Eastern's use of you as a pilot and undermine the effort to reassure passengers as to the safety of air transportation. So what they're saying there, Eastern is saying that because you're a trans woman, people on the plane won't think that you're a safe pilot. And it'll diminish our image in the public sphere. The judge dismantled this argument by pointing out that an Eastern airline pilot and his wife had just posed in various degrees of dress for Playboy magazine and Eastern had no problem with that. So she won the case uh, like Leonard Matlovich before her, but also like Leonard Matlevich before her, uh, the legal victory did not have the long term effect that we might have hoped. She lost her appeal uh, in, in the appeal court and that set a precedent for workplace rights or the lack of workplace rights for trans people. That would last for for many years following that now she died in a dc3 crash in 1989 and after she died uh, she was honored by the experimental aircraft association i don't have to tell you this group that that's a big deal to be honored by the eaa and uh but but what i find most gratifying and a final victory for her is that in the honors they use her correct name and correct pronouns which is for for trans people really all all they want as we head into the 90s don't ask don't tell debuts in 1994 now it doesn't really change too much to be perfectly honest all it really did was eliminate the questions about sexual orientation from the screening so this thing that was developed in the 1940s for world war ii you couldn't ask anymore are you gay as you come in but all the rest of the policy functionally stayed the same these are some screens from a a delightful comic I found uh, explaining don't ask don't tell to the armed forces but what the military is doing there is still saying that GSM individuals innately are not part of the definition of the ideal American and Don't Ask Don't faced several legal challenges. And, and the one I'm gonna talk about here to wrap up this talk is uh, Wit versus the Department of the Air Force. This is Major Margaret Ritt, Witt. And she was outed without her consent while serving at Joyce, Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which is yet another local connection. For some reason, all these things are happening in the Air Force and happening here in Washington State. Joint Base Lewis-McChord is just a few miles south of us here in Seattle. And uh, so Wit had been in a relationship with a married woman who was living out in Spokane and the husband of the married woman found out and called the base and outed Margaret to her superior officers. She was honorably discharged in the mid 2000s, which was the uh, way it happened back then, and uh, she sued. You're noticing a pattern here. She sued the military, claiming that it had poli- uh, violated her equal protection clause. Uh, in the Constitution and again in the pattern she won her suit Uh, and the Air Force reinstated her so that she could retire as opposed to being uh, involuntarily discharged in 2011 now again as before an appeal was in process the Air Force was gonna push back but the Air Force dropped its appeal in May 2011 now why did they drop it well it's because don't ask don't tell was already on its way out Uh, The groundwork had been laid by Congress in 2010 and then the Obama administration repealed it in 2011, uh, officially in September 2011. So now, to the military, the official uh, label of of ideal American now included gay, bisexual, and lesbian individuals, uh, though other members of the GSM community continued to be held at arm's length. It wasn't until a little while later that the Obama administration lifted a ban on transgender military, individuals that that they were allowed to serve which the trump administration put back in place uh, when he became president which the biden administration (laughs) reversed in january of this year and i think just a few days ago i know ken sent me something a few days ago uh, which is some of the implementation of that policy so that shows if nothing else that rights are fickle depending on who's in charge All right, we've covered a hundred years of history in the last hour, <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, hopefully at the end of this talk, you, you walk away with an understanding of these three themes. The, the documenting the history of marginalized populations is tough, but vital. That aerospace history is GSM history. These are interconnected and can't really be separated. And finally, we talked a bit about the evolving definition of what is the ideal American. I hope that this talk serves as an entry point to a a better and just more comprehensive understanding of history. If you are interested in resources, oh, do I have them. First of all, here's my email address. You're welcome to send me an email. If you have questions or you want to chat more, if you want to fight with me, that's fine too. I'm not going to fight back, but I, I welcome people and all perspectives and then if you want to check out the podcast museumofflight.org podcast if you enjoyed this this talk you'll probably find something you enjoy there the most recent episode is a story of a dentist who got to fly a military dentist who spent uh, a couple years trying to get into the back seat of a plane finally got into the back seat of of a jet started writing a letter home to his folks about the experience but never finished that letter and he shares why he didn't and the next episode coming up soon, uh, I believe, is going to be a conversation with astronaut Wendy Lawrence, who also very quietly has come out as married to a woman. Uh, but that's not really part of the interview there. I think she's pretty quiet about that. But it is it is out there in the world. So all right. I'm open for questions.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. It's wonderful. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, so folks, if you have a question, you know, you can raise your hand, you know, this is the time, you know, you share your thoughts questions and the, uh, you can uh, speak out, just raise your hand, we'll unmute you. Uh, so uh, uh, Sean and Michelle will be uh, happy to uh, answer questions question and share. So go ahead.
1: Yeah, you know, if, if you don't have a question yet, one thing I'd love hearing is what's sticking with you or what do you want to learn? What do you want to learn more about? You know, if you're not sure what questions to ask, that's always some interesting conversation.
2: Yeah, Sean, I think you did a really amazing job. Uh, thank you for, for bringing this story out. It's definitely an area that needs to be talked about more and, uh, some, Aerospace archaeology is needed to really ferret out more of these stories that I'm sure uh, are there. Uh, so you, you've really helped open the door. So thank you for that.
1: I appreciate that. You know, a lot of this, though, is, is really standing on other people's work. Um, a, lot, a lot of uh, the, the World War II talk that I've put together is a lot more of my original research. This, this is less so. but uh, So there's stuff out there if you look for it. But um, in a lot of ways, it's not very centralized, which is perhaps the, the problem. <laughs> the stories are fractured and, and in a whole bunch of different places as opposed to um, you know anywhere one, one-stop shop. And, and I'm thrilled that the Museum of Flight is taking an active interest in preserving these stories and, and telling a more comprehensive version of aerospace history as well. So maybe we'll become the one-stop shop for people.
2: There you go. Absolutely. Well, I mean, putting this out. I mean, there, there, as you've pointed out, there are some books uh, that do cover this, and uh, but uh, in today's age of video and stuff, it's great to see this out there in a live talk presentation or on YouTube or something. So, again, I think that will definitely uh, help uh, move the conversation forward.
3: Okay. Um, yeah. Actually, I have a question. Um, this is Athena. I. I wanted to know what uh, your observations are regarding trans people finding and keeping work in aerospace. Um, that's been kind of a, anyway, I was studying engineering at one point and I ended up dropping out for a variety of reasons, but I've, that was one of them. So I'm curious what you have to say about any of that.
1: Honestly, I I don't have a lot of expertise or ex- experience to be perfectly honest and frank in that area. I think. Um, In a lot of ways, hearing from you would be much more valuable than hearing from me and what your experience Mm -hmm. is, the the good, the bad, and the ugly, because that's how I think we're going to uh, learn and move forward and and create an environment. I think uh, the the one thing I can say is, um, as I said, our, our society likes to draw a lot of value from the military. And so the military... Seeming to move in the long arc of justice, uh, you know, long arc of history bending towards justice doesn't help today. Uh, but it, it it seems that we're moving in that direction, and a lot of things trickle down from federal regulations and and military regulations. Um, so I see that as a good move on on the part of uh, the protections being put in place there. Um, in the history, unfortunately, there's not a great history. I mean, we have Karen Ulane who. If she had won her case, and that case had stayed, there would at least be legal protections under the Civil Rights Act, she did not win uh, the appeal. And so those protections were not put in place, unfortunately. Um, So on the on the historical side. um, So I I know I'm doing a disservice by throwing it back at you or or Michelle. um, And forgive me, Athena, I don't know your story. Uh, Forgive me if I'm presuming anything. But, um, you know, I think that your voices are going to be much more valuable in terms of getting the conversation going and, and continuing it in the public sphere. And, and where I would come in is trying to capture that story so that it can be amplified and, and um, heard by others who can, who can make things happen.
2: Well, if I can throw in here too, uh, you know, I ran a, a transgender support group, TG Rainbow, and there was a time when our group, about half of the members of the group were trans people, from the aerospace community. Uh, I, I've just found that there's just a huge number of trans people that have been attracted to working in some aspect of aerospace. And I think that's been really wonderful to see. But it's also very bizarre in some ways because there has been such a pushback, like with my book and stuff, where you mentioned how some people, you know, after they found out I was trans. Uh, They said, you know, I never spoke to her about the X-15 or anything like that. And uh, even to this day, I'm still getting some pushback from people where it's like if you go to the Amazon page for my book, the only time you find that there's a bad review, somebody will point out the fact about being LGBT. That's what they use. Um, and it's it's just really a terrible thing that, you know, people still see this as such a negative uh, and it doesn't make any sense at all. It's one of the things I've been really happy with overall with regard to the X-15 book is the fact that I go out and do my talks, uh, as I have here for Ken and so many other AIAA groups and many more, Um, and it's It's interesting because, you know, as a trans woman, I'm tall and big, I get this crappy voice. I stand out in a crowd. And when I walk in to do my talk, I can see there are people in the audience that are getting this reaction of who the hell is this person to be talking about the X-15, along with just who the hell is this person? Uh, But every single time, by the time the talk is over, that stuff just all falls by the wayside and it doesn't exist anymore and i am so happy about that because that's the way it needs to be it's like this is not who i am 100 percent of my time in other words i when i walk into a room i don't tell somebody hi i'm michelle i'm trans that's not what i would do any more than somebody would say you know Hi Sean, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Sean, I'm straight or whatever, you know, what, whatever it is, or, or gay or, or anything else is not part, part of a normal conversation. So just the fact that we are more normalizing of just who we are and is just part of the background of who we are instead of being the be all and end all of who we are is what is really so important with your talk, with what I do with my talks and stuff like that. And it, it really does help change the conversation.
1: I'm also curious, uh, AIAA being a professional organization, what role AIAA has played in in the conversation? Uh, I'm, I don't know um, how, or, there's also uh, engineering unions that could be, uh, I'd be curious to, to learn about. What they're doing uh, because those are people who can lobby for legal protections now legal protections don't change minds necessarily i know there's there's multiple conversations to be had um but um at least it's a legal protection um and and things can go from there yeah legal protections
2: are so important it's one of the things that's like i live here in california california has very strong laws that protect trans people in employment discrimination, housing discrimination, all these kinds of things. And yet, when somebody does come out as trans or le- gay or lesbian or what have you, um, they can circumvent those laws because they'll find some other excuse to deny you service, to to fire you from your job, what have you. It's sort of like what happened to me in the military. You know, they couldn't come out. And they couldn't prove that I was trans, but they used other methods to basically destroy the career path that I was on. And so there's that underlying discrimination that can go on, even though it's not officially LGBT or GSM discrimination. So, yeah, I wish there were more protections, but putting those protections in place certainly helps. But too many people can find ways around it as well.
3: Well, that's been my experience also. I mean, you know, no one, I didn't become unemployable because, you know, people never were never stupid enough to come out and say, well, we don't want no queers here. Right. But, you know, almost by magic, you know, all the experience I had prior to that point became largely irrelevant and you know, I'd go in job interviews and started out well, and I'd see something in their eyes, you know, like, holy, you know, whatever. And, you know, I never heard from them again. Um, Or anyway, it's just, yeah, it's kind of this, um, so I'm sort of having to do things on my own, I guess. But uh, yeah, that's, yeah, they always find another reason, you know, legal protections are better than nothing at all. But, you know, people want to get rid of you, they'll get rid of you. Oh yeah, in my experience.
2: Yeah, that's one thing I'm actually very thankful for is uh, uh, that I did not transition on the job. Um, It was, uh, you know, something I I did not have to do. I had already left the corporate world and was on my own uh, when I was able to transition. And uh, it's interesting. The Orange County Register ran an article. Uh, about my transition. I was really good friends with the science editor at the Orange County Register at the time. And when he found out that I was trans, he wanted a story about it. So I I gave him one and I still had friends where I had used to work in the aerospace community. And when they were told about the story or when I told them about the story and they went and read it, I got this really interesting reaction that this friend of mine was saying that you could sort of tell as people were passing on the story, it was sort of like going down the hallway. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You know, <laughs> I, I'm really glad I was not in <laughs> the office on that day.
3: <laughs> yeah. I had experience like that too. Um, with the VA when I, um, because I needed to go in there and change stuff, you know,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and, Not quite that extreme, but, you know, I went and, you know, gave this guy my paperwork and then he went out and brought this woman back with him that wasn't involved in the process. I guess it's just so she could stare at me and smirk, I guess, you know, like I was some kind of whatever. That's
2: terrible that happened at the VA. I'm very sorry. Yeah.
3: So, I mean, although generally it's been a reasonably positive experience, but, you know, I mean, that was years ago prior to film i don't know all this stuff kind of blends in together when it happened but yeah i've anyway yeah it's (laughs) you know i ask people the question how does the aerospace industry treat trans people it's more of a rhetorical question i already know the answer i'm just mainly looking for you know something that would contradict it
1: anyway well athena thank you for sharing your your story what you've shared here and I do hope you find a, a place I we're working on some stuff at our museum to, to help more systematically kind of gets get these stories uh, so I, I hope you stay in touch uh, because you're you and, and everyone here I mean everyone's story has value but um, you know I hope I hope you recognize the the power of your own story I guess is where I'll, I'll say there um, I also I have a theory and this is totally me you know, my non-scientific thing, but, but what Michelle was talking about why the aerospace industry seems to attract so many trans people and, and LGBT people or, or GSM people in general. And, and my, my imagined reason is because a lot of folks grew up inspired by Star Trek and kind of that world of the future where these things aren't an issue anymore and people can just live and they want to work in that industry to help bring that about faster. Um, This is completely unscientific. This is totally me postulating, but, uh, uh, anyway, it works for me. So Uh,
2: I'll I'll throw another little uh, thing out there. As far as my theory on the subject is that I know a lot of LGBT people, especially trans people speaking from my own personal experience, you know, I knew from, you know, my very earliest memories that I was trans, that I was really a girl and my parents wanted to shut that down and nobody wanted to hear it. You know, the word transgender wasn't even invented by the medical community until I was in my 20s. And so I became very non-social and I retreated into books and things like that. And I think there are other people in this community that maybe have done the same thing and that retreating into books and things, uh, you know, how much time is spent by people um, going to classes, doing higher learning, stuff like that, but they might not have otherwise done if they had been accepted. So they've had the opportunity because aerospace is a very uh, educationally uh, necessary uh, uh, place to be for an occupation. So maybe, as I say, it's a weird theory, but I think that maybe there's something to it that, you know, we've just had more time to do the studying that's needed to be in these types of jobs just because we haven't been able to be out there and participate in society as a whole as other people might have. So probably totally crazy, but that's just one of my thoughts.
3: Well, I certainly became non-social, you know, yeah. I mean, so it's, yeah, I, I think it's a, yeah, definitely a very valid theory. Well, thank you. Hey, everybody.
5: This is Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. Mike. Um, <clears> oh, <throat> well, I was, um, at my last job, I was open to a few people. Um, I got a job in the aerospace industry after graduating from college and I was very open in college. And I think that's, that contributed to me being successfully graduating and getting my internship afterwards. Um, so when I got my internship, I was open to a few people at my company, um, but I never made it publicly. Publicly, I didn't tell HR. I and I was very insecure at the job because it was my first. It was my first job out of college. I was very insecure. Um, I came. I I became dependent on some people. I think I could have had better support. Um, but I guess my question is: Do you make I guess, my, I guess my question is, do you make it known to HR or, or is it even necessary? Like uh, Michelle said, um, you know, we're no different than straight people. Straight people don't go into their job and you know, make it known that they're straight. You know, we, we know if they're married, you know, just by, you know, we know who they're married to just by talking to them. You know, so that's kind of what I what I did. Um, I never explicitly said I was gay, but I did, you know i I think I did infer it you know, in our conversations. But I think I I made a comment. I think that it just needs to be more normalized because I think that people are insecure. The reason that they go into a job and they feel like they need to come out is that they're just insecure. But really, you know, they shouldn't be, they should be confident in who they are. Um, I think it's important for somebody, you know, somebody new new to their career to, you know, find support, you know, find allies within the company that they can talk to, but they don't need to be an, it's not necessary to be an advocate. and you know, go around telling everybody just like it isn't necessary for somebody who's straight, you know, to go around and tell everybody. And I think that could be a trap that, you know, somebody can go into and it it could look, it could look, it could look negatively upon them, you know, by going around when you first go into a job and be like, Oh, I'm gay, you know, accept me. So, um,
3: well, my experiences. My sorry, um, my experiences. It's not. It's not much advantage to outing oneself. You know, um, there was a Space Society chapter here in Phoenix. I was a member of. That I'd been with them for a while, and eventually, it. I came out to them because it was. It became relevant, and then I found out. You know that, inadvertently, that they weren't actually okay with that you know, and so I'm no longer involved with the chapter, yeah. which hurts like hell, by the way. Um, and um, yeah, so and, and there again, they didn't, I wasn't kicked out because I was trans. They always come up with something else. So um, yeah, I i don't know. I've, I, I. I don't generally tell anyone you know, uh, and, you know, in the professional world, you know, I never would, uh, you know, and it's cause it's, there's just, there's just no upside and let's never under- and you, the you, tendency you. of people to be shitty. So when you're, when you're, when
5: you're, when you're being hired for a job and you're interviewing, I know that it's not acceptable for a, um, a interviewer to ask explicitly if you're gay, but I'm wondering if you are hired, is it, should you make that known to HR?
3: You know, I wouldn't, you know, I I wouldn't out yourself. I wouldn't out myself unless there was some strongly compelling reason, you know, and because I mean, people in HR can be bigoted too. You know, I mean, totally. Well, yeah, you know, everybody, yeah I mean, I, I mean, everybody, I mean, it's, I mean, own. the HR people in my company, you know, What like compelling are, reason
4: could there be?
5: Well, individually, everybody has their own opinions, but in HR as a whole, they're there to, they're there to make things run smoothly and help. You know, there isn't, HR isn't just one person.
3: Well, hr i my experience this is my observation of how hr functions in practice and it's basically hr exists to to like preventative maintenance for a company getting sued you know after the company gets sued that's what the lawyers are for hr exists as like like a prevention and that's 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 their main focus anything yeah. else they do is off on the side but i it's you know that's when I recognized that fact everything they did became clear so I wouldn't expect them to say to care about you particularly you know it, it's yeah. not it, I it, can it's, agree it's, with it that. just doesn't but it just doesn't work that way I wish it did but it doesn't well that's what I hear
5: too um, I don't have I don't know for sure if they're there to protect you or if you're, but should you but shouldn't if not HR, should you be open to people within your team?
3: You know, if you get a sense that the person can be trusted, but I just, you know, there's just not much upside to outing yourself. I mean, I, you know, I guess if you, if you know, it's it's kind of a case-by-case case thing, but, I you guess, know, is- I... I
5: I guess, I guess, I can agree with that. Maybe there's not a benefit to outing yourself, but you shouldn't hide who you are. You shouldn't like lie or be deceptive.
1: I, I, I think um, one, what I would recommend, if 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 you're thinking of a specific instance, um, one thing I would recommend is there are professional LGBT um, Q plus organizations out there that exist um and they specialize in this kind of thing so i would recommend um i mean uh, in aerospace i know i'm i i do not know what your background is here but the, the national gay pilots association um does this for pilots i mean even if you're not a pilot you know send them an email and ask them this question and uh, you're you're within their world uh, and and but even outside there's um like gay chambers of commerce and i say gay they are supposed to be theoretically usually open to all identities um um, so i would recommend you know if if you have concerns about that seek out a professional organization that's specifically kind of identity based because you're not the first person (laughs) to ask this question uh period (laughs) you are far from the first person um so i i would recommend if you have something specific in mind to to contact one of them and and see what they say oops oops i well, whatever, I'll stop screen sharing. I got the point there. Uh,
2: and yeah, if I could uh, throw something in here too, one of the things that <laughs> I found can be very helpful is just sitting back and listening to what's going on around you. Uh, in other words, you, know, you, you could even bring in, a, you, you could use today's talk as an inroad to start a conversation. Without outing yourself, you go in and you talk to your fellow workers. It's like, oh, I I, I heard this really neat talk about you know, uh, LGBT people in aerospace over the weekend, and then you start gauging the reaction of your coworkers to how they react to that. It's like, oh my God, they talked about that, or hey, that's really cool. And so that's one of the ways that you find out who the safe people are to speak with, uh, things like that. Um, Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the added uh, difficulties with regard to the trans community is that if you are on the job, when you start your transition, you really don't have a choice but to come out. So you have to go in and you have to talk to HR and stuff like that. So in that situation, for a trans person, I highly recommend a trans person go off and get as much detailed information as they can on their own before they walk into HR so you know what your rights are and things like that as far as that goes, because there are, you know, we're here speaking with the AIAA, Los Angeles, Las Vegas group. You know, we have those protections in employment and housing here, but it's like, Athena, you're talking, Are you if you're still in Arizona, you don't have the same protections that we do. And so, yeah, when you come out and so many uh, states, we've got like 38 states that can fire you just for coming out as trans. And we're somewhere in the range of like 25 to 30, where you can be fired just for coming out as gay. So you definitely need to protect yourself that way. And it's one of the problems, because there are people who are living in those states who do transition on the job, and they take their career in hand when they do come out. Uh, And it's a terrible, terrible thing. I wish that we would move forward on a national protection for all LGBT people. Uh, We're moving in that direction, but we're still a ways away from it. We need an affirmative uh, ruling at the level of the Supreme Court. Now we have had some positive rulings in relation to that at the Supreme Court, but they've been very narrowly defined. So they have not been a blanket thing to say, yes, if you're LGBT, uh, you are going to be protected. But there was a recent case that was decided uh, in 2020 about a trans person who was fired uh, from uh, working at a mortuary because they came out as trans and she did win her case. But again, it was a really narrow ruling on why they allowed her case to win. So yeah, so you de- you you got to be aware of what's happening in your state, in your location, and what your specific rights are before you go in. And and if you don't have to go in, then then probably the best thing is don't do it. But again, try to seek that out so you know if you're surrounded by people who will support you or not. Make a lot of lot of difference.
1: Yeah, and and very importantly too, outside of your workplace, remember that you you are not alone. In, in your fears, your joys, your struggles, your, your celebrations. Um, yeah, the, I was reading a different oral history uh, for, of, uh, for my World War II presentation. They were talking about how, how to be alone is to be isolated, and to be isolated is to be able to be controlled. Um, so remember, you are part of a community. You don't have to be someone who goes to the parade. To be part, or goes to the bars, to be part of a wider community, you know whether that's this group right here. It, it sounds like there are are professionals here, people who who walk alongside you, and so never feel like you are isolated, even though you might feel isolated, you are in reality not. Um, so find people who you can surround yourself with, or or be friends with, or be colleagues, or cordial with, you know, <laughs> who you we can talk
5: I can, to. I can relate to that, Sean. Um... I've, I've, I've been, I've been um, out as gay since like 2005, and during that time, I was very isolated on the internet. I didn't have a lot of, I didn't have a lot of um, um, social skills, emotional intelligence. I struggled at my jobs, outside of off of my computer. Um, so when I went back to school in 2000. And, I went back to school in 2016, which I left in 2005 because I couldn't, because I had social anxiety in school. So I went back in 2016. And this is after a long time where I was doing volunteer work. I was very active in the community. So I associated my computer with isolation and loneliness. And I didn't want anything to do with my computer. So I went back to school and I was. You know, I didn't have the social anxiety anymore. So when I got my last job, I didn't want to be at the computer because um, I, but I had to be at the computer anyways. And then I didn't function very well at my computer. And then I, I left my job, and then everything we had COVID, and now I'm very, I've been very isolated on the computer. So it's been um, oh, jeez, oh it's been triggering me so i feel like i've gone back to when i was a teenager with my social anxiety i was once diagnosed with asperger's nobody says i have asperger's i can communicate and i've been able to communicate and you know speak to people in person very well over the last over la- the last decade but i feel like it, this covid has been triggering my asperger's and i felt i've been feeling that isolation so it's really good it's really good to be able to like be on here and talk about this because I have a lot of memories when I was younger of being gay and being isolated and, you know, being very confused and, you know, so it's good to be able to have that balance of being in the real world and being open and being on my computer and being open and being able to, you know, communicate and express myself, you know, So I think it's one of the things that's happened with COVID. I think
2: we're, uh, uh, we're creating an entire generation of agoraphobics, you know, (laughs) nobody's going to want to go outside and nobody feels as safe anymore. It's going to take a a long, long time to, to get over this last uh, 13, 14 months of being isolated and yeah, LGBT people tend to be very isolated even more so in many cases. So yeah, I, I understand what what you're saying there, Mike, about uh, uh, going back to your teen years and feeling that isolation even more. And uh, it's one of the things I like to point out a lot, too, is that, you know, the whole GSM community probably amounts to somewhere around maybe 10% of the population. Uh, and Uh, for myself in the trans community, we're only probably about half to 1% of that population. And so as the LGBT GSM community as a whole, the trans community uh, very specifically, we have very little power ourselves because we are just a minority. We are a very small minority. And what gives us power is allies. We have allies. Uh, it's like Ken, who's running this meeting for AIAA today, You know, is a staunch ally of myself. He's been a great friend for many years. Um, my wife, Cherie, is my ultimate ally, although she doesn't go by the name Ally, she goes by the name Rottweiler. She, she comes after anybody, whoever comes after me. So it's those allies. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Jeannie, Jeannie knows Cherie. She knows she's my Rottweiler. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's like those are the people we need. Jeannie is another person who is a personal ally of mine. So we need to seek out those allies. It's another reason why I talk about that idea. Of, if you're on the job, to seek out allies on the job because they are going to be there, they're going to have your back and stuff. So, you know, finding those people are what makes our lives possible. It really is because on our own, we're never going to get the laws changed, we're never going to get our safety taken care of. It's only with those people around us the spouses, the family, the friends people like that, that are going to make our lives possible.
1: Yeah, Jeannie, I see you have a question. I just have one more thought about this, just to to wrap it up. Um, While I don't think you should just go to HR and register yourself as uh, (laughs) the the company homosexual (laughs) or something like that. um, There there is there will be times, you know, even for non trans individuals, uh, say, say you're a man who's going to get married to another man uh if you want them to be benefited if you want to contact uh, you know update your contact information things like that there 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 will be a time when at some point you will have to talk to hr um, to make sure that the records are updated properly so um i don't say that to scare anybody but you know you don't have to go out and do it up front but um you know depending on how your life plays out and not everybody gets married that's perfectly fine Um, but um, if that is a direction you end up going uh, you will have to have a conversation with them and and that's when again making sure you understand your rights <laughs> things like that uh, at the museum of flight our the head of rhr is a gay man so it's like all right we're we're fine <laughs> we we no problems there but but you know it, it really <laughs> it is case by case anyway Jeannie, you've had your hand up for a long time i'm sorry
4: well i you were talking about can you hear me okay Okay, you were talking before about the the connection between um, Air Force and the uh, GSM community. And I was wondering because I've known gays, gay people of different types, but especially men, great friends um, and I think I don't want to use the word gentle. Some of them are what you would call a manly man, except that they prefer men. Um, But they're not aggressive. And I was wondering if the Air Force had that attraction because although planes drop bombs, they don't have that mass killing bloodlust kind of thing that the Army and the Marines have.
1: Yeah, so so there's there's a lot of there's a lot to that question. So thank you for asking it. Uh, I'm gonna kind of go back a little bit um, to World War II uh, because that's that's when a lot of this kind of became codified. Um, so when those screenings were first happening, that I talked about, that Harry Stack Sullivan and then the military put into place, what they were looking for, they would ask you outright, "Are you homosexual?" Uh, there's an interesting little aside there because the word homosexual really wasn't. In the lexicon it was a medical term most people hadn't heard it before so there were a lot of people being asked are you homosexual you yeah. might have been gay but they were like no because they were like i don't know what that means <laughs> so um yeah. but what they're really looking for were characteristics so they were looking for what we would today consider you know the stereotypical things about being gay so someone who might talk with a little a bit of a, a lisp in their voice or who might gesture in a weird way or or might have some more feminine appearance so this, there was this really hyperemphasis on feminine characteristics in men that were the warning signs which meant that while there are first of all there are straight men who put those characteristics out there uh they might have been filtered out and there are plenty of homosexual men who did not display those characteristics and inversely uh, at the time they weren't going after women with nearly as much gusto but women who presented a more masculine, what we would call butch, you know, short hair, <laughs> one of the characteristics from the time was drinking beer from a bottle, which is if a woman does that, then it's a masculine thing apparently. <laughs> um, so they're really going after characteristics. So, so that's one of the <laughs> yeah. reasons, yeah. It's one of the I reasons remember. why in the military um, that that legacy kind of held over. So they're going after like these these very surface level um characteristics and and of course there's always so much gray area i mean anytime if you you look at like the cycles of things anytime there's a war there's much more leniency and anytime there isn't a war suddenly there's all these witch hunts getting all the homosexuals out and then there's a war and then there's much more leniency so it it really you know there's a lot of gray area in there but i think that's one reason why in the military you you have um what we would call more more masculine <laughs> gay people. I mean, this is a very surface read of the discussion, um, but that's that's one reason why you might notice it um, in in that population because there was this hyper focus on characteristics, and and people would go out of their way. Um, and I'm speaking mostly about gay men because that's that's the majority of the record that we have. Um, it does not mean that there were other people who weren't part of it, and and that's how they identified too. I mean that. The, the vocabulary the lexicon how people think about themselves has changed over time as well so so some of these men might if they were living today identify as trans or or something else entirely um but I just want to caveat that um but the the point where i was going with that has completely escaped me so i'll stop talking
2: <laughs> oh, sean i think i think what you pointed out about how uh uh, the acceptance depends on the situation. And the most um, perfect example of that is Alan Turing in World War II. And he, as a gay man, he helped win World War II for the Allies. Uh, and yet after the war, then he was you know, an open target as a gay man uh, to have his life taken away from him, uh, eventually forced him to commit suicide. So a really, really terrible situation where, yeah, well, it's, it's convenient. Then sure, you can be gay, you can be trans, whatever it is. But at the moment that convenience disappears, then you're in deep, deep trouble. And it's something that, uh, we have to definitely be on the lookout for. And, uh, uh, yeah. So again, it's just the idea of getting out here and being able to do these kind of talks, just speaking openly about this, has changed the conversation so much. Um, I mean, I go out and speak on on trans issues all the time. I'm part of the PFLAG Speakers Bureau, and we go out and speak to you know colleges, high schools, uh, civic groups, the sheriff's academy, all these things, talking about these trans issues, and it's amazing since I first started doing those talks, how attitudes have changed. And I know those attitudes have changed because we're out there doing these talks. The fact that Sean is doing this talk is is great because it changes the conversation. It creates a conversation that wasn't there. And these people that you know will come in and say, well, we don't need to talk about it. And it's like, yeah, we, we do. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a safety issue. This is one of the things for me, again, I pointed out this idea, you know, I'm tall, I'm big, I got this crappy voice. I knew with absolute certainty that I could never, ever successfully transition because of that. And yet, here I am today. And I knew I would never go out and talk about trans issues because of that. Why would I want to do that? And then I realized that going out and speaking on this issue is a safety issue for me. The more people I can speak to as a person, the more people I can reach, then the you know, it's a very selfish thing that maybe they're not going to attack me now. <laughs> and, and that's a good thing. So yeah, the more we talk about this, the, the better. Uh, it needs to be open. I go back to Harvey Milk, where he was telling everybody, if you're gay, tell everybody you're gay. Tell your family you're gay. Because if they know who you are, you know, they can't, they can't attack you nearly what, how they could, uh, before, uh, I know Mark asked me to, uh, speak about, uh, Pete Knight. Uh, so if, if I got a couple minutes, I can, I can mention that. Is that okay, Sean?
1: Uh, it's, it's fine with me. Yeah. I, I, I know we're coming up. I don't know if there was an official end time, but I'm happy to stick around as, as long as, You all will have me. So Okay. Well, I'll I'll, yeah cut me off if if
2: we do run out of time, Ken. Uh, But uh, Pete Knight was uh, uh, the 10th pilot on the X-15 program. And he was a great guy when I spoke to him and stuff, when I interviewed him and all these other people. But it was many years later when I found out what a homophobe he was. The terrible thing about it was that it came out that his homophobia... Uh, manifested itself because both his son and his brother came out to him as gay. And his response to that was hatred. It was absolute hatred. He disowned his son. He disowned his brother. Uh, his brother eventually died of AIDS. Terrible situation. Um, and uh, it's really weird. Uh, I talk about this in the book. Um And this is where I get the bad reviews from some people because I dared talk about Pete Knight, who's an X-15 pilot, but I mentioned what he did to his son and stuff in his later life. He was specifically responsible for Prop 22, which was the first ban on same uh, gender marriage in California, which led directly to Prop 8, which installed it in our state constitution and led to the nationwide fight for marriage equality. So these kinds of things where you you find somebody with this, this personal animus where they can't even accept their own family was just such a horrible thing to see. And I've never quite understood the dichotomy of the fact that the aerospace community as a whole, we are on the forefront of pushing the future in many ways, pushing the technology, Uh, just pushing toward the future and yet there are so many members, Pete Knight being one great example of this ultra 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 conservatism within the aerospace community. Uh, So it's, it's, it's really strange that we don't have more progressives within the aerospace community but again holding these conversations, hearing these kind of talks, This is what's changing it. I know when I came out as trans, as Sean mentioned in his talk, there were people who literally said, I never spoke with her. I would never speak with a person like that. And there was one person in particular who I knew had that reaction. And I went out and did my talk one time and he was there in the audience and I was I was a little worried it's like oh my god is he going to stand up and shoot me I didn't know what because he had been adamantly uh saying that you know this is not the kind of person I would ever talk to and yet after the talk as I mentioned before that's what the normal reaction is he came up to me and he talked and we have been great friends since he's helped organize other talks for me so we can change people's minds just by getting out there and doing what we're doing right here today.
1: And that's why I said earlier that I hope everybody understands the power of their story. I, it's very trite. It's very feely, you know, good feely. And it, it, you know, doesn't help pay the bills. But um, we, uh, working in museums, I mean, I, I loved history all growing up. But, you know, you when you're the academic version of history you get in middle school and high school is like the big picture. You know, these things just happened because they magically happened. We magically had the revolution and then we magically declared independence. And, you know, it's it's very uh, it's very top down. And, uh, you know, it's 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 a shame because only later on when you start learning actual history and you see that it's people who moved history along uh, and often not the people you think that um, that you really understand the power of people's stories. I mean, you don't have to sue the military <laughs> to, to have a powerful impact on history. Um, you know, not everybody is going to be the person who gets up and uh, is is the test case or is this or that, and that is fine. Um, it comes back to the community, uh, knowing that you're not alone in the fight. and And even if you're somebody who can't be out, in your workplace, you know, that that is okay. I, I think we didn't really get to that too much, but like the number one rule about coming out is it is your choice and it should absolutely be your choice. You know, no 100%. questions asked. You don't have to come out to anybody you don't want to. Um, so even if you're somebody who can't be out, just um, knowing that a world exists that that you are a part of in some way is is very powerful i think about uh, sarah davis who is somebody i've worked with again from our world war ii talk and she talks about how she would get a a newsletter like a magazine a a lesbian magazine from a a lesbian organization in san francisco Uh, uh i can't remember the name off the top of my head and it would come in this like paper packaging and she was terrified anyone would see it but like this was her once a month once a month reminder to herself that there is this world that exists, and that's that was enough at that point in her life to to get her through that that time when she couldn't really be out, and and she didn't quite understand who she was necessarily in the way that she did later on. So, yeah, and I agree, Mike. Yeah. This, um, oh, he... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Michelle. Oh, I was just saying. I think Athena had a question that she wanted
2: to ask. I
3: just want to make sure she got to oh, jump in there. Well, it was just more of a—I don't know—I was agreeing with a lot of your experiences, Michelle. I mean, you had mentioned you had this comment about that. Yeah, they'll accept you as long as to their advantage. Like during the war, they'll ignore that you're gay, and then when the war's over, then they then they they kick you out. And yeah. yeah, it was you know, and that was been my experience too with the National Space Society, at least in Phoenix. And I'm I'm calling them out. And, you know, but um, yeah, it was, you know, I was, I was out of there when it was not convenient for them. And, you know, that was how it worked. So um, anyway, but um, yeah, so it's, you know, I, I understand that it's important to, to speak out to and to do things like this. I guess it's it's a it's a fine line, you know, and I don't know. I I, I it gets, it's a matter of if a person is a, in a safe place and they can do that, then you know, then I, I guess they should, you know. But um, if you gotta eat, then that totally friggin' changes the equation. Oh yeah.
2: I'm so sorry that you had that experience in Phoenix with the NSS. Uh, I was a part of the NSS for a long time. I, I ran the Orange County Space Society here in Southern California for like 15 years and it was actually one of the things that uh, um, uh, fueled my transition so to speak. Uh, we were out there doing public talks and displays and, and supporting others and stuff in space exploration and when I was starting my transition I actually made a decision early in my transition that I was not going to come out to those people in the space society because and I and I had this weird idea that I could transition in everything else in my life but that I could I could keep that separate and I'm not going to come out uh, if I had to do an event I'll, I'll try to go back into some sort of male mode and uh, because uh, I didn't want it to interfere with our mission of space education that we were doing. And then all of a sudden it came up, it was the, uh, the time to put out nominations for the coming year's officers. And I was president at the time and I, I uh, felt that I needed to come out to the group because I, I said to myself and in, in conversations with Cherie, that I can't run for another year in office without being honest and letting these people know who I am. And so that was what I had to do was come out to them. And amazingly, I thought that I would be rejected. I knew there were people inside the society that I thought would reject me. And everybody who was there at that meeting that night when I did come out supported me and I got my re-election and everything else. And I am still amazed to this day that that did happen. So again, I'm really sorry that that uh, uh, was the opposite of what happened to you when you were there at NSS in Phoenix. So I, I apologize on the fact of the NSS doing that to you and your, your local chapter doing that to you.
1: I want to acknowledge, we, we have most of the audience has stuck around, and it's only been a few of us talking. So thank you for <laughs> sticking in and listening in. I want to make sure Yeah, a great group chance. of people yeah, here today. Yeah. Feel free to ask any questions. Hey,
5: it's Mike again. Um, I wanted to say two things. First, I wanted to stress I agree with the importance of being an ally for um, transgender, specifically. I went back to school in 2016 and I was very insecure about being gay. And I was trying to be, um, and I wasn't involved in the LGBT community, but I was, I was, um, I did, I was more sympathetic to people that were, I felt more um, marginalized in me for being gay. So I did become, Um, friends with a a couple of transgender people at school and I really feel bad for them because like I graduated and I and um, some of them today I know are really struggling like I feel like I feel like they had it bad like they didn't get it they weren't as you know they had a rougher time you know than you know straight people and even gay people so I'm, I'm still, these people are still on my radar. and I really feel bad for them. And I, I really want to, you know, I really hope the best for them, you know. So I, I do think it is really important to be an ally for transgender, because I think they have it um, even worse than me. Um, also, I wanted to um, speak about the laws, you know, we're, we're talking about the protections that we have um, and how, you know, they may not go far enough because, you know, they'll, um, they'll find some way to, um, you know, to get rid of you, you know, find some use. But I think the key to that is just be a likable person, you know, be, be somebody that people like. Um, you know, that goes back to having allies and, you know, but if you're not liked, you know, people will find, it doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, trans, people will find a way to get rid of you. So. Um,
2: a so smile that we'll goes go. a long way.
5: And then, you got another point, but I can't remember. So I really, this has been a good discussion. I I appreciate it.
1: Of course, and and in the interest, and I'll just, I'm going to volunteer poor Ken, sorry. Uh, (laughs) But if anybody does have something that has come up in this uh, Q&A session that they want to not be on the final recording that gets posted, Um, send me, send Ken, send someone a a note. That way we can edit that out and. uh, make sure it's not out there. Because again, we want to make sure everyone's safe. Exactly. Uh,
2: right. so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly.
4: yeah I was just in a book club, Zoom meeting the other night and we got Zoom bombed by people saying, well, they mostly came to me. I don't, I'm not sure why, but I'm, I mean, it was pretty interesting, dirty phone call, basically. Uh, we never saw faces, but you know, you just, you have to protect yourself. Yes. It's, it's crazy these days. Everybody does.
2: Yeah. We've heard about those zoom bomb people and stuff. And uh, luckily haven't had that happen. You know, it's like right now I run my trans support group and we meet every two weeks via zoom. So uh, we've been very lucky, although we did have one person. I wouldn't say they were Zoom bombing us, but they were a oh, troll. So we had to do something about that. But, uh, yeah. Can Jamie see you?
1: hmm
2: oh Shree has to stay. hello.
1: Shree, hi. <laughs> hi, how are
4: you? Hi, sweetheart.
2: <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay. Come
4: girl. home. Oh, sweetheart, you're so... <laughs>
2: This, this oh, is not the place to be. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, Shuri does exist. Just wanted everybody to know she does exist. <laughs> I, I let her out of the closet this morning so she could say hello.
3: Ooh. yes, dear. So,
1: yeah. Anybody have any more questions? Mike, it looks like your hands I
5: have a question, Sean, that just popped in my head. Um, So so you're in Seattle and they you volunteer at the museum. Now Jeff Benzos from Amazon, he 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 stepped down from Amazon. He's gonna be focusing more on his um, blue origin. Has he become more involved? Has he have you has he been to the museum?
1: Yes, Jeff, Jeff has been to the museum, uh, and to clarify, I do work at the Museum of Flight too. I'm, I I started out volunteering there, uh, but I work in the education department. Uh, yes, he has been to the museum. Uh, he he uh, gives gives money to the museum, or has he actually? <laughs> uh, at a recent gala, I happened to be in the bathroom right next to him, which is all another thing. But um, but yeah, um, Blue Origin is a space company doing work out here in Seattle. In fact. A uh, lot of most of the uh, rocket engines that uh, almost all these companies used are manufactured by Aerojet Rocketdyne, who has a big office here in Seattle. And I just saw in the news yesterday that I think a SpaceX or somebody's rocket, like a piece of it, landed in someone's backyard out here in Seattle, in the in the in the uh, rural area. Uh, oops. Yeah, a bit of an oops. Uh-oh. Yeah, uh, and that's. Uh, yeah, so so Blue Origin has a, a bit of a presence in terms of some of the artifacts that they present, and and actually, if you're interested in this, I'll post an episode. Uh, I did a podcast last summer. I did a mini series on the oldest artifact, the youngest artifact, the biggest artifact, and the smallest artifact in our collection, uh, and they were super fun to do. They're they're very um, like narrative, almost audio documentaries, and the youngest artifact in our collection is actually a, a flag flown by Blue Origin to space on one of their capstone missions and it presented a really interesting opportunity to talk about how we discuss controvert or, or objects that have the potential to be controversial in their story uh, because there are people who who look at first of all space exploration and ask why are we spending all this money going out to space and we got a lot of problems on earth there are people who look specifically at Blue Origin and they say this is funded by Amazon money and Amazon uh, has a string of issues related to labor and inequity. Uh, I mean, in the news right now, this week, um, they're they're in the news for labor discussions. And so how do you tell a story in a museum that is succinct? Because most museum visitors will look at a sign for maybe 10 seconds, uh, but is also trying to tell a more complete story and you know how do you try to pack all of that stuff into uh, a piece of interpretation in a museum uh things that might have a lot of baggage that pe- that might be very emotional for people um in that episode we talk also about uh what's happening with indigenous artifacts in museums and all what's called repatriation and without going into a whole 101 on museum history but museums were founded the modern museum was founded out of a movement that believed that white people were innately superior and that it was our duty to go out and turn everybody into culturally European, basically, culturally Northern European. And so a lot of museums collected artifacts uh, partially because they were going under the assumption that their cultures would be eradicated, that like Native American cultures would no longer exist because they would all become European and, and so we need to collect these things to preserve it. And they also did it just because, um, because they could, <laughs> sometimes. And so there's a lot of these artifacts that that frankly, it's called provenance in museums. Uh, that the the story attached to an artifact is called provenance, where the provenance is basically that it was stolen or that it was taken or that it was acquired through uh, unsavory means. Uh, there was recently a news story about the Museum of the Bible in in D.C. where it turned out a lot of their artifacts were illegally imported uh, into the United States. Um, So, so there's, there's a lot that goes into that discussion that we did in this podcast episode. Yeah, Athena, you know, it it is uh, the discussion about spending money in space and space exploration. I mean, I know, I know the audience I'm talking to. (laughs) So uh, I think I think we would all support it and, and see the value in it, but there are people who don't. Um, there was actually, when the Apollo uh, anniversary was happening two years ago, Jeez, was it two years ago? We, we we actually had the Apollo 11 capsule, the, the Command Module Columbia at the Museum of Flight, um, the one on the anniversary, and there was a group, a local group here, that wanted to put on a protest in the exhibit, uh, basically about that so it is it is a it is a topic that is worth discussing Uh, we we shouldn't shy away from it Um, and this is my personal opinion you know we we shouldn't not question things you know the second we stop questioning things uh, is the second we have problems Uh, so you know we don't have to disagree with someone to ask good questions to make sure that we're all on the on the right track
2: Yeah, asking questions, and even more importantly, listening to the answers. So important. Yes. Mike had a question.
5: Um, I I don't think I have much more to add. I should have been more direct. I should have just asked, has Jeff Benzos ever visited your museum? (laughs) Because that's kind of what I was wondering. but that was inter- that was interesting. What you elaborated on about um, about museums, and i, I kind of I've, I, I I've, I've kind of found it kind of ironic that uh, you know the connection between going to you know you SpaceX you you mentioned muse like Jeff Bezos is trying to get to space, but at the same time he's you know he's the head of a company who probably makes a big dent on the earth, you know? So I just find that kind of interesting, you know, that connection between, you know, space exploration and, you know, um, the impact on earth. And and the thing about museums is interesting about, you know, why they existed, that makes total sense to me. Kind of an interesting thing
1: yeah i mean we've come a long way but there's still vestiges of that and yes so answer your question yes jeff bezos has been at the museum the bathroom that i was in with him it sounds much weirder than i think i mean, <laughs> was at the museum in the basement during one of the galas um so he, he has been to the museum much shorter than you might imagine um but really? well we but,
5: live we yeah. we're in we're in um you know the two richest people you know, Jeff Denzos is in Seattle and we're in the South Bay where, um, SpaceX is where you have, um, what's his name? Elon Musk. So I think, I think SpaceX has some presence in that area too.
1: Oh, everybody, everybody has something going on up here. Um, like I said, Aerojet Rocketdyne has a big office here. So, uh, uh, yeah. I don't think it's where they manufacture, but it's where a lot of their stuff is designed. Um, so yeah, there's some presence here. They're, they're, just about everybody has somebody here.
2: <laughs> yeah, Seattle is an important hub for, for the aerospace community, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and if you're interested in diving more into the history, uh, I hope you do have a chance to come to to the Museum of Flight. We we started out as um, they basically – somebody – a Boeing a – something a boeing manager was up in alaska and found an airplane in a dump that was the only remaining uh airplane of its type that boeing made the boeing model 80 and that was the first artifact that we came got and then then they spun it off into its own nonprofit, and and since then we've grown to to truly be one of the largest air and space we, we as far as we know we're the largest like non-governmental air and space museum. So, so there are bigger ones, obviously National Air and Space and, and places like that. But they're all federally funded or state funded. We are an entirely independent nonprofit.
5: Is that the actual um, museum behind you, or is that a?
1: Yep. This is uh this is the Great Gallery, which is one of our uh, exhibits. It takes you from uh, are you the birth
5: museum, or is that a picture?
1: It's a picture. <laughs>
5: right. it's like this,
1: this exhibit behind me uh, is one of our larger spaces, and it walks you through the right Flyer here. Uh, through the early history of aviation up through uh, pretty close to modern. It kind of ends in the late 70s, 80s. Uh, and there's other exhibits that take it from from beyond there. Uh, but just about anything you want to see. One of the centerpieces is the MD-21 Blackbird, which is the only of its type that still exists. Um, fastest plane ever built. And this particular one was built uh, with a drone on top of it because the initial idea was that since they couldn't fly over people, they would fly a drone over Russia uh, because Russia didn't want people. They, they initially said uh, Russia called up the US and said, no more flying, uh, no more flying people over. And so the president said, all right, we won't fly over Americans. Uh, so they got British people to fly over. <laughs> and then the Russia called up and said, all right, no more people, come on. And, and we're like, okay, no more people. So they devised this idea to use a drone to fly over and uh there were two built one this was at the skunk works the lockheed skunk works and um kelly johnson and so two were built and then during an early test the drone uh when it was detached there was a problem with the aerodynamics and it came back collided with the blackbird uh snapped it and then uh one of the two either the the pilot and the the secondary person the backseater one of the two uh i don't remember what was that michelle rso I believe. it could have been i i don't remember um but one was killed and and the other one survived but that was the end of that program and the the blackbird moved on to be what else of the blackbird but we have this other remaining blackbird md21 which we have at our museum so it's a pretty unique piece in the great gallery
2: one thing of course you still really need is a nice uh full-scale mock-up at the X-15, but that's just my (laughs) personal preference.
1: You're not biased there at all, right? No, not at all. I was wondering where
4: it was.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There's only two X-15s that still exist, actual aircraft. One is at the Air Force Museum in Ohio, and the other is at the Smithsonian, although the one at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. was actually taken down almost two years ago for refurbishment of their milestones of flight gallery, so... Uh, I would love to take this opportunity if we can get out from under COVID to maybe go back to the Smithsonian and see where they have the X-15 sitting in storage at the moment because it's usually hanging up high over your head and you can't get access to it. And so uh, that's that's one of the things I'm hoping they actually don't rehang before this is all over with. So maybe we'll have that opportunity to get back there and see it in storage. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the national air and space museum is undergoing a, a multi-year refurbishment i i don't remember when it's scheduled to end but it's still a few years out so yeah. for those of you traveling to dc a lot of it's closed down or or um partially open at the dc campus their yeah. other campus the udvar out in dulles is yeah. all open as far as i know yeah and it's probably and... where they're storing the x-15
2: yeah, that's, that's what I understood. I talked to somebody there that uh, that said that it was out at udvar somewhere, but as far as I know, it's not on display. They didn't stick it on display. They should have it sitting in the gallery with the space shuttle. That would be wonderful to see the two side by side because the X-15, of course, without the research on the X-15, we may not have gotten the space shuttle, at least not in its configuration that we saw it for for 30 years, so. Yeah, that'd be really great if they did a, a display of the two side by side because nobody's ever done that and the Smithsonian is the only one who could do it. So we're probably about time where everybody wants to go
1: off to lunch again. <laughs> no, yeah, we, yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah.
5: I feel like we got off topic a little bit. I feel like I took it off topic.
1: There's no off-topic in a Q&A. It's aerospace. <laughs> we we literally cover the whole world with aerospace. So any time, any place, we got this. There you go. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you again for taking time. And so many of you stuck through all the way to the That's end. That's a great
4: yeah. way to put it. I like that.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Sean. This was, this was a great presentation today. And, uh, thank you for having me here with you uh, as well. And ho- hope I didn't step on your toes too much being here, but uh, I, lo- I love hearing your presentation and thank you for your work you're doing in this area.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you, thank you, Michelle, for sharing your story to be part of this. And, and thank you, uh, Athena and Mike, uh, for speaking up and sharing your own stories. And and to anybody listening, just again, remember the power of your story. it, it, it is Even if you don't tell it to anybody, <laughs> write it down, do something because it it truly i can tell you somebody who who works with people's primary documents to try to get these together you know you have so much power in your story and i hope you i hope you remember that yeah many things matters oh yes yeah thanks to ken for
2: for having us in here today and uh i know ken actually did get some blowback from people for talking about this subject in aerospace so Thank you, Ken, for uh, not succumbing to pressure and and having Sean in here and, and being able to to see this today. So uh,
5: yeah. it's great. Thank you so much. Um, I've been having trouble with Zoom because, like I said earlier, I you know I, I've been having trouble speaking openly. So I, this has been really helpful. You know, i I was kind of shy at first when Ken was putting me on the spot to speak up, but. <laughs> It seems to be getting better, so.
1: Fine, <laughs> sounds fine to me. So. Yeah,
2: thank you for sharing your story, and, and Athena too for for being here to talk about her experiences.
1: Well, have a wonderful rest of your weekend, everybody. Absolutely.
4: Thank you so much, both of you.
1: Thanks, all. Thank you for having me. Take care.